Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you get part two of the murder of Jessica Lloyd, which started as a missing persons case and evolved into two murders, two sexual assaults, and 48 break-ins, all committed by a prominent Canadian military officer. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, go check that one out so you can dive into the insane details that are about to unfold in this one. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. left off last week with the insane revelation that Officer Russell Williams confessed to both murders, both sexual assaults, and offered up that he also broke into 48 different homes in an effort to steal their underwear. It's not often that we get the full confession of a serial predator, but this time we do. The entire thing was videotaped and a lot of it's been transcribed, so let me walk you through the mind-blowing interview he had with police where he detailed more depravity than anyone knew they were dealing with. The interrogation took place on February 7th, 2010, just a few days after that roadblock, and lasted for 10 and a half hours. At that roadblock, you'll remember that police took note of his tires and his odd demeanor. He had told police that he was in a hurry because he had to get home to his sick child, the child he didn't have and most certainly was not sick. Authorities started the interview by asking Russell multiple times if he wanted an attorney and even offered a list of attorneys that would offer free legal advice over the phone, and he declined every single offer. He chats with the detective about the two sexual assaults and says that they happened not far from his place in Tweed. Russell tells him that he didn't even know the first attack had happened until the OPP went door to door after the second one. Yes, the OPP went door to door and even spoke to Russell after the assaults happened, the second one being only three houses down from his. He claims that he only met the victim once and it was during the summer of 2004 when they first moved into the cottage. When detectives ask, he tells them that he was at home for most of the day Friday when Jessica was reported missing, claiming that he had the stomach flu, but despite that, says that he later drove to the base he commanded around 8 or 9 p.m. to sleep. So he didn't go to work because he was sick, but left home before bed to go to work to sleep, because that makes sense. The last sentence was a lie. They talk about Marie Como, and Russell says that he met her once, that she was in the same crew as him when he got stationed at CFB Trenton, and that he found out about her death via email. Detectives ask him what they can do to move past him in this investigation, playing on his hope that, hey, maybe through some freak accident, if I comply, no evidence will match, and I'll just look like the super cooperative asshole. I mean, guy. He agrees to give them fingerprints, saliva, blood, and shoe impressions, but asks that they be discreet, saying that it would have a significant impact on the base if they thought he had anything to do with Jessica or Marie's murders or the two sexual assaults, and that it's hard to quiet the rumor mill once it starts. A really delusional concern, knowing what we know now. They take a quick break so someone can grab his shoes, a buckle swab, draw his blood, the works, and the detective comes back into the room and continues the interrogation. 
The investigator asks him if there's any reason his DNA will match the DNA found at any of those crime scenes they've discussed, and Russell says no. They ask him about his Toyo tires, the treads we know they got impressions of from outside Jessica's home. He flippantly chats about replacing them in the last year and how they're great tires and common for Pathfinders. No one had talked to him about the tire impressions yet, and he's already trying to slip in that they're common for the vehicle he drives. They talk about the roadblock he was stopped at and ask him if at any point in time in the last couple of weeks, he might have driven off the road, you know, maybe into a field. And of course, again, he says no. This is when they let him know that the tire tracks matching the tires on his vehicle were found along the north tree line of Jessica Lloyd's property. They also let him know that a female police officer specifically remembered seeing an SUV matching the description of his Pathfinder parked there that night. According to CBC Canada, two other witnesses wound up testifying to seeing his Pathfinder parked there for several hours that night. At this point, they're done playing games with him and know he's a bullshit liar, so the tone of the interrogation becomes less inquisitive and more accusatory, and rightfully so. They show Russell the boot prints left in the snow that clearly walked right up to the back of Jessica's property and then show him a photo of the boot print he just gave to police and they're identical. Shoe impressions are extremely unique. I think a lot of people initially dismiss them because a tread pattern is a tread pattern. But when you have an individual's specific foot in a particular shoe, the print that gets left behind is very specific to how the person's foot fills the shoe and how their weight is applied. The detective flat out tells him, your vehicle drove up to the side of Jessica's house and your boots walked into the back of her house on the 28th and 29th of January. There's a warrant being executed on your house. Your wife knows what's going on. We're going to find evidence linking you to these crimes. And you and I both know your DNA is going to be a match for the DNA left on Marie Como's body. If my face was an emoji, it would be the bug eyed one at this point. If you thought this would be the point where Russell cowers or even gets defensive, you'd be wrong. Instead, this is where Russell asks investigators to please call him Russ. He gets oddly upset about what his wife must be going through getting the news and worried that officers will be tearing up his new house that they're trying to renovate. The detective essentially tells him that they don't have a choice since he isn't telling them where anything is and asks where Jessica's body is. Russell doesn't waste a single fucking second, and instead of denying that he had anything to do with Jessica, Marie, or the two sexual assaults, he simply says, Got a map? <gasps> Hell yeah, I do! They grab one, but he asks for a more detailed one, and once they get it, he points to exactly where they can find Jessica, 40 feet from the road, with the clothes he kidnapped her in and her head wrapped up in two gray towels taken from his house. He tells them that he didn't kill Jessica in her apartment, that he took her from her apartment to his cottage, and that she was actually alive for almost 24 hours before he ultimately killed her. He admits that he had never met her and that he just saw her inside of her house running on a treadmill the Wednesday before he killed her. He had just been driving by. If that wasn't creepy enough, he admits that just the next day, he drove back to Jessica's house when she wasn't home. He tried every door and window to try and get into her house, and every single one was locked except for one, the kitchen window. 
So he opened it, went inside, and looked around, checking to see whether or not she lived alone, and it was clear to him that she did. His decision was made. He went outside, waited, and watched. Russell wanted to make sure that when she got home, she was alone, and she was. So when she fell asleep, he broke back in, but this time through the back patio door. He attempted to sneak up beside her bed, trying to knock her out, but Jessica woke up, so instead he told her to lie on her tummy, tied her hands behind her back with some rope that he brought with him, and put duct tape over her eyes. I don't know why, but knowing that her killer used the word tummy is creeping me out. Once tied up, Russell says that he took her clothes off, cutting off her shirt because her arms were bound behind her back. He then raped her in her own bed, videotaping the entire thing. He was there at her apartment for roughly four hours before deciding that this time he wasn't going to just leave, at least not without her. He had her put on some shoes, the shoes he notes were a part of the description on her missing persons report, and with her arms still behind her back, he led her out of her own house and into the front passenger seat of his Pathfinder and drove her to his cottage in Tweed. At this point, it's between 4.30 a.m. and 5 a.m., so her attack likely started around midnight. Once inside Russell's house, she used the bathroom and then took a shower, but she didn't shower alone. Russell got in there with her and washed her himself. Afterwards, he led her to a place where she could take a nap, and he napped with her, making sure that she was tightly bound to his body so that he could sleep knowing she wouldn't get away. Russell also takes a second to shoot an email to a co-worker saying he wouldn't be in that day because he's got the stomach flu. A short time after laying down, Jessica tells him that she suffers from seizures and that she could feel one coming on, and she did. He tells the detectives that she seized for about 15 minutes, all of which was caught on his sadistic videos. He tells detectives that he talked her through it and made sure she didn't bite her tongue. Once the seizure stopped, he said she was exhausted, so he put a blanket on her and let her sleep for about an hour, ignoring her plea for him to take her to the hospital. When he woke her up, he had her put on different pairs of her own underwear and bras that he had taken from her house and took pictures. Russell mentally, sexually, and physically tortured Jessica for hours as he photographed and filmed it. McLean's Canada reports that in Jessica's video, she pleaded for her life and asked that if he didn't let her live, that he made sure her mother knew that she loved her. But Russell assured her over and over that if she just did everything he told her to, he'd let her go. He continued taking photo after photo after photo, and when he finally finished, he let her get dressed, gave her something to eat, and just when they were about to leave the house on Friday evening, or so Jessica thought, he hit her over the head with an aluminum flashlight. 
Russell tells authorities that he was surprised how her skull just gave way and that he didn't expect there to be so much blood. While she laid unconscious and bleeding on the floor, he took the same rope he used to bind her hands behind her back, wrapped it around her neck, and strangled her until she ultimately died. After he killed Jessica, he duct taped her entire body into the fetal position, cleaned her blood off of his tile floor, and put her body into his garage. He didn't seem too worried about decomposition because of how cold it was outside. Then, that evening, he just drove to work. The same base he didn't go to earlier that day because he claimed to be sick with a stomach bug. He slept at the base that night because he said he had to fly an airplane the next morning and then after that went to Ottawa to spend the weekend with his wife like it was any other weekend. Russell says that he didn't get back to the Cozy Cove house until Tuesday night, which means that Jessica's body was in his garage for four days before he moved her. He waited until around midnight that night into Wednesday morning to put her body into his vehicle and leave it a few miles down the road. And if this was any other case, the interrogation might be over, the confession might be complete, but this isn't any other case. So next, they talk about Marie Como's murder. He had only met her one time, but that one time he did meet her, he remembered her telling him that she lived alone, something that never left his memory. So about a month before her murder, he decided she was going to become his next victim. We know that she was before Jessica, but she was after the multiple home invasions and two sexual assaults. Russell says that just like in Jessica's case, he broke into Marie's house via an unlocked basement window that November, before the break-in that killed her. He knew she wasn't going to be home at the time of his first break into her house because she was in his squadron and he knew her schedule. And again, just like in Jessica's murder, his first break-in was to look around and verify that she did in fact live alone, checking for any permanent male pieces, and he found None. While he was there, he decided to try on some of her underwear since he had the time. He even took a few pieces home with him that night. At this point, I'm almost feeling like all women who live alone need to start putting men's jackets and shoes by the door and extra toothbrushes in their bathroom just to throw shit bags like this off. On the night of Marie's murder, Russell turned off his phone before he left his house, knowing it wouldn't ping near hers. He drove to her house, and while he was creeping around outside, he could see her in her bedroom talking to someone on her phone, and he used that moment to break in through the same basement window as before. But this time, someone caught Russell. Well, something. He planned on waiting behind her furnace until she fell asleep, but Maria's cat threw off that plan. According to Murderpedia, her cat was fixated on something in the basement, and when it wouldn't come upstairs, she went down there to see what it was staring at. When Marie got down there, she instantly spotted her base commander, though she didn't know it was him. He had worn a black skull cap and one of those nose and mouth masks that you can wear around your neck so that only his eyes were exposed. 
She yelled out, you bastard, before Russell charged her and hit her over the head with the same flashlight he hit Jessica with. When Russell, what he refers to as subdued Marie, she was wearing nothing in the comfort of her own home, never thinking that the man who commanded the base she worked at had been targeting her since the day they met. Once Russell wrestled Marie to the ground and bound her arms behind her back, he put duct tape over her mouth so that no one could hear her screamed, then tied her to a pole in the basement so that he could run outside and put the screen back on the window to cover his tracks. Once he did that, he went back inside, and at this point she had lost consciousness due to the blow to her head, and Russell carried her up the stairs and put her in her bed. Marie regained consciousness once she was in her bed and waited for any moment she could to run away. At one point, Russell walked away from her to look out the front window to see if anyone was coming, and when he did, she got up, ran into the bathroom screaming, and tried to get anyone's attention. Marie was a fighter. But her mouth had been duct taped and no one heard her. Russell got the bathroom door open and got Marie back into her bed. He assaulted her for nearly two hours, filming the entire thing. The videos of both Marie and Jessica were played in court and their families had to watch them in horror. Both of them begged Russell to let them live. CBC Canada reports that in Marie's video, you can hear her saying, I want to live so badly. Give me a chance. I'll be so good, please. At one point, Russell tried to strangle Marie, but she fought for her life. When he knew he wasn't strong enough to strangle her, he used more duct tape to cover both her nose and her mouth and held his hand over them to ensure that she couldn't breathe and waited until she died. After killing her, he took the sheets off of her bed, threw them into her washer with some bleach, and let it run. He then went back to her room, put her on top of her mattress, removed the duct tape from her face, covered her with her comforter, and casually walked out the back door. Her boyfriend found her five days later. Russell's confession, the thing he's most concerned about is his wife's house in Ottawa, and he doesn't think they'll find the evidence they want easily, so he tells them where to look. He says there are memory cards and the camera bag in his office, and if they go to the left when they walk into his office, they'll find a wooden IKEA filing cabinet, and in it they'll find two more memory cards. He tells them that he deleted everything from those two cards, but he's sure they can recover the images on them. Images of Jessica, images of Marie, and images from both of the sexual assaults. He says if they can't get them off of the memory cards, that they can probably get them off of the two hard drives in the house. He also tells them that they can find Marie and Jessica's underwear in a box against the wall in the basement of his Ottawa home. They had just moved in, so there were boxes everywhere, but he knew exactly which ones his trophies were in. Well, I shouldn't say a box because he mentions that there are a few and one of them is a box his office scanner came in, but that they're all next to one another. He knew exactly where they were. 
Realizing now that there's going to be more than one box, the detective asks about how much stuff they're going to find, and Russell tells them 60 fucking pieces. But they didn't just belong to Jessica and Marie, he says they also belong to his two sexual assault victims. Knowing that number is mind-blowing, they take this time to talk about his first sexual assault victim, who to this day is still referred to as Jane Doe. He tells the detective that he spotted her from her boat on the lake and decided to break through an unlocked side window when she was asleep. He chose her because she was cute. Once inside her house, Russell says he went to her bedroom and just stood there while she slept, just watching her before he decided to hit her over the head with his fist and then laid his entire body on top of her again to subdue her and then says that he took her pajamas off and took pictures of her. The image of this creep just staring at her while she slept with no idea that she wasn't home alone is going to give me nightmares. Russell says that he fondled Jane Doe's naked body while he took photos for two hours. She couldn't see what he was doing because he had blindfolded her with a pillowcase. The entire time, Jane Doe was terrified for her eight-month-old baby girl, who he says was in the next room. He tells police that he assured her he wasn't going to hurt either of them, as if that's any comfort whatsoever. Once he was done taking pictures of Jane Doe, he took a few pieces of her underwear, one of the baby's blankets, and left. The binding, cutting of the clothes, and using the flashlights as a weapon seems to evolve after Jane Doe's attack. His second sexual assault victim, Lori, he says he chose because he knew she lived alone. Now, she did have a boyfriend, but Russell tells detectives that she had confided in him that they were fighting. They knew each other well enough that Russell knew about her relationship problems, and he used that as a tool against her. Just like he did in Jessica and Marie's cases, he broke into Lori's house a couple of nights before he attacked her. Again, he wanted to make sure she did in fact live alone and, again, stole some of her underwear. On the night of her attack, he broke into her house via a window in her sunroom. When he got into her living room, she was asleep on the couch in front of the TV, and he says he hit her with that same red aluminum flashlight that he used on both Jessica and Marie, but it didn't knock her out. So, again, he says that he subdued her with his body weight before cutting her clothes off and taking pictures of her. He says he cut her top off because her hands were tied behind her back, so that was his only option. He told her this bullshit story that he was one of many men in the house at the time, that the others were robbing her and it was his job to control her and that he wasn't going to hurt her. She asked him if he was going to kill her and this is when he responded with that eerie, no need for that, comment. When he was finished taking pictures of Lori, he told her to wait a certain number of minutes or count to a particular number, he doesn't remember which, before calling the police. She called 911 at 5 a.m., and according to CBC Canada, she was still blindfolded when they got there. Russell had just casually walked out of her house, down the road a couple of houses, and back to his place and went to sleep like nothing had happened. Lori had no idea this wasn't the first time her attacker had broken into her house. 
Russell tells officers that he can find the items he took from her house in a green duffel bag in his laundry room at the house on Cozy Cove, and that they'll find photos of him wearing the lingerie he stole. And that they'll find photos of him wearing the lingerie he stole. The photos he took wearing his victim's lingerie was sometimes in their house and sometimes later wearing it in his own home. During his confession on February 7th, he wrote a series of apology notes, I'd call them letters, but frankly calling them notes is even a stretch, and the Ottawa Citizen got copies of them, so let me read them to you. This one was to Jessica Lloyd's mother. You won't believe me, I know, but I'm sorry for having taken your daughter from you. Jessica was a beautiful, gentle young woman, as you know. I know she loved you very much. She told me so again and again. I can tell you that she did not suspect the end was coming. Jessica was happy because she believed she was going home. I know you have already had what looks like a lot of pain in your life. I'm sorry to have caused you so much more. To his first sexual assault victim, Jane Doe, he wrote, I apologize for having traumatized you the way I did. No doubt you felt a bit easier now that I've been caught. Worst apology ever, fuck off. To his second sexual assault victim, Lori, he wrote, I'm sorry for having hurt you the way I did. I really hope the discussion we had has helped you turn your life around a bit. You seem like a bright woman who could do much better for herself. I do hope that you find a way to succeed. What the fuck? This guy is acting like some kind of depraved counselor who dished out advice during his sexual attacks. The letter he wrote to Marie Como's father reads, I'm sorry for having taken your daughter Marie from you. I know you won't be able to believe me, but it's true. Marie has been deeply missed by all that knew her. Can you imagine your child's murderer letting you know that she's missed? But that wasn't the only letter he had received from Russell. Right after she was murdered and found, Russell sent Marie's father an email on behalf of his role as the base commander, issuing his deepest sympathies. Marie's father had no idea that the next letter he would get from the same Russell Williams would be as her admitted murderer. In October of 2010, Russell went to court and pled guilty to every single one of the 88 charges against him. According to Murderpedia, the charges took 36 minutes to read out. The crime spanned from September of 2007 until January of 2010 when he abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered Jessica Lloyd, her murder being the one that stopped him and ended his terror on the single women in the communities he frequented. CBC Canada reports that Russell admitted to wanting to act on his desires as early as his 20s, but didn't until now. Russell had 88 charges against him, mostly for breaking and entering, but he only broke into 48 different houses between Ottawa, Tweed, and Belleville. The 88 charges racked up because he broke into those homes multiple times. One of the homes he broke into on nine different occasions. The first house he's ever thought to have broken into was his next-door neighbor's house. They were friends, they'd have dinner together, you know, normal neighbor shit. But when they went through everything found during the search warrants on his homes, they found photos of him in his neighbor's house, on a bed, wearing the homeowner's 
14-year-old daughter's underwear and masturbating. He had broken into that house not once, not twice, but three different times. It was easy for him because he knew their schedule. The house he broke into nine times belonged to another one of his neighbors, and sometimes she was home when he did it. She just didn't know. One of those times, he waited until she was in the shower, took off all of his clothes, broke in, walked into her bedroom, stole her underwear, and left. Clearly, simply breaking and entering wasn't enough of a thrill anymore. This time, there was a risk of being caught. This time, there was a risk of being caught naked, but alas, he wasn't. Thankfully for the police, Russell kept an incredibly detailed log of all of his crimes and thousands and thousands of pictures, which they found in the places he directed them to look and in some places that he didn't. They found more evidence hidden in the basement ceiling of his Ottawa house. What they already thought was going to be a lot of burglaries wound up being more than they ever could have imagined. The pictures were always in sequence, first of the bedroom he was in, then the underwear in the drawers, then the underwear neatly displayed on the bed and or floor, then each individual item, then him in it, and then him masturbating. And he didn't just take pictures of himself and his trophies. He would often take photos of paperwork in the homes he broke into that identified his victims and photos of their photos. He wasn't just obsessed with the lingerie. He was obsessed with knowing what he had done and who he had done it to, even if they weren't aware. At some point, though, being anonymous wasn't enough of a thrill and Russell started leaving notes for his victims. One of them was a 12-year-old girl whose underwear he had stolen. He typed the word merci into the computer sitting on her bed, thanking her in French for the underwear he had stolen. One of the pictures police recovered from Russell's various hiding places was of his penis strapped to a sex toy he stole from a 24-year-old woman in Ottawa two years before he was caught. It was captioned, merci beaucoup thanking her even though it was just in the description of the photo. He literally took the time to name the photos. In 2008, he masturbated in the room of a 15-year-old girl, leaving his semen all over her dresser. They found a photo he took during that break-in, and it was of him using one of the teen's makeup brushes on his penis. That makeup brush was not stolen. There were other photos of him masturbating in the bedrooms of other victims, some of which were as young as nine, and oftentimes he was wearing their underwear while doing it. In early April of 2010, a week after confessing to his crimes and transferring the large Ottawa home into his now ex-wife's name and the Cozy Cove cottage into only his name, it's reported by Ghoul P.H. Mercury that Russell attempted suicide in his jail cell in Quinty. Thank you to all of the cool Canadians who corrected my pronunciation in last week's episode. The Globe and Mail reports that he jammed his cell door using cardboard and foil, wrote a suicide note in mustard on his cell wall, saying that his feelings were too much to bear and that his affairs were in order, and then tried to suffocate himself by using a toilet paper roll also stuffed with foil and cardboard. Obviously, this didn't work, and jail staff busted in and stopped him. 
The day prior to his suicide attempt, he had tried jamming the cell door with a pencil just to watch and see how long it would take them to get in. The outlet reports that it took them 15 minutes, but I suppose he ran out of pencils. In late October of 2010, after the trial was finally finished, Russell was officially sentenced. He was given two life terms in Canadian prison, which, as we know, means that he has the possibility of parole after only 25 years. Canada did not allow for concurrent or multiple life sentences to be served until 2011. The Canadian military stripped him of his commission and shredded it, burned his uniform, and cut his medals up into pieces. His vehicle was also symbolically crushed and scrapped. Russell was also in the background of a photo used for a booklet, and the military felt it was offensive to have him on anything, so they ordered all 4,000 copies to be destroyed. In 2014, two civil suits against Russell were settled. McLeod's Canada reports that Jane Doe, his first sexual assault victim, had filed for $2.45 million in damages, and Jessica Lloyd's family had filed for $4 million in damages. No one knows what the settlement numbers wound up being, but it is noted that it was resolved to the mutual satisfaction of all parties. The $7 million lawsuit filed by Marie, his second sexual assault victim, was not settled in that agreement. Serial predator and murderer Russell Williams will be eligible for parole in 2035, and the world can only hope that it will be denied. For all photos pertaining to this case, and there will be quite a few, check out Jessica's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we continue the talk about the insanity that is this case. If you like your podcasts ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are totally ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you two brand new cases a week from today, one regular and a bonus episode for Patreon members. And I cannot wait. But until then, we out. (laughs) 